Please be seated. Maybe you had a chance to see that very pretty poster on the fence at our neighbor's place, First Press. It reads, 9-11, a day of remembrance and hope. And I got to say that when I first saw it, I was really quite moved. There's an ancient Greek word, splagnithomai, that's often used in the Gospels to characterize Jesus' reaction to tender encounters. The word is meant to describe his personal experience of, oh, a hungry multitude, a sightless man, a widow whose only son is being carried past. And it means to be moved to the bowels, to be gripped all of a sudden by compassion. In the case of our neighbor's poster, I'm not sure whether the gripping I felt deep inside was about remembrance or hope, but I took it as an invitation to prayer. And so I began with today's gospel. We have before us today a pair of Luke's parables. The writing is spare yet poetic. And much the way poet Kathleen Norris claims the Psalms are best appreciated for their psychological accuracy, it seems I can't ever reflect on parables without doing so under the rubric of the kingdom of God can be compared to. So today I want to talk just a bit about the kingdom of God, a vast and multi-layered concept, but one that today's text is particularly effective in helping us to understand in very helpful ways. I want to begin with deliberate use of kingdom language, mostly because I've come to believe that throughout the Gospels, Jesus demonstrated a pattern of trying to get the disciples to move away from it. First, in his attempts to shatter their understanding of Messiah, and second, in his references that systematically point us to the kingdom being within. But getting the disciples to make such a shift wasn't easy. The whole kingdom concept was so deeply ingrained Vestiges of it still remain today. So I guess I'm hoping, rather than dismiss it or reject it out of hand, to find ways to welcome it into a place of loving interrogation for the sake of God's purposes. <laughs> Pardon me. Vast and multi-layered. If the parables represent comparison studies of the kingdom of God, then that kingdom is like quite an array of things, people, and circumstances. New cloth, new wine, a lamp on a stand, a moneylender forgiving unequal debts, rich men and servants, both wise and foolish, fig trees, sower and seeds, mustard seed, yeast, a pearl, a lost coin, a lost sheep all over the map. And yet, while each depiction isn't necessarily a record of actual human experience, Jesus' references are always made in ways meant to draw his listeners into here-and-now experience. Part of what he does with parables 
is to use them as invitations to a variety of personal spiritual awakenings inside each individual with ears to hear. He never gets around to offering a precise definition of kingdom, probably because of the ways it happens or wants to happen across the seemingly endless variety of phases and aspects of human life, which is probably what makes these parables such helpful gateways. Because as he tells these wonderful little stories, rich in both emotional content and accessibility, we are encouraged to notice the energetic resonances in them. The, the personal and inward spiritual life and how the individual connects with God. The very existence of internal spirituality among all souls on earth. The growth of the community of believers, those whose energies are vibrating harmoniously, and even the possibility of more perfect fulfillment of the will of God, which we will see is the real crux of the matter. And finally, even the beginning of a new kind of kingdom in its fullness, that is, the future spiritual age of light and life on earth. What rises up for me out of all of this is a new wonder about the parables and maybe all of Jesus' teaching and ministry, the entire Christ event, that all of it is about creating and advancing a process of incrementally changing human will, and in doing so, having a practical effect on human decisions to the extent of gradually but certainly changing the entire course of human evolution social and otherwise, which is a lot, I know. Changing human will, free will, we don't have to. Jesus knows this, knows that not everybody has ears to hear his invitations, and yet he persisted. Often he'd respond to a kind of whataboutism with a spun around, well, what would you do? kind of story meant to lead his questioners into self-examination and the opening of their hearts to compassion. If they did have ears to hear, and if he could get their hearts to even begin to open on to compassion, it is in that space where the resonances of kingdom of God have a chance of shifting to the will of God which is indeed the crux of the matter. It is what he is all about. And today's text shows you what I mean. In response to, hey, Rabbi, what about them sinners you're eating with? Jesus tells three parables in a row. In the two we have before us, he responds explicitly by asking, well, what would you do? Say, if one of your hundred sheep was missing, or if one of your ten precious silver coins was not where it ought to be. He tries to engage you, to get you personally interested with a pair of very brief little snapshots. But you know, it's worth mentioning how persistent the whataboutism can be as well. I was recently asked, what about the 99 sheep? Does it really make sense to leave them at risk of thieves and wolves? 
Or what do you suppose the coins actually represent? And while such questions do raise legitimate practical issues, I can't help but wonder if those are the issues Jesus is most concerned about. It's like he uses them as bait almost. But I think that being focused primarily on those kinds of practicalities amounts to automatically clinging to human will rather than God's will and risks missing the spiritual message. It is probably much more in alignment with Jesus' thinking to be open to the possibility, to actually be looking for it, that what's even more important in the story than my possessions of sheep and coin is being touched deep inside and allowing the rising up of a new priority, the genuine and heartfelt inclination toward restoration and wholeness, which is the presence of God in me. The sheep and coin may certainly represent things, but I think what's even more significant is that the story is meant to be representative rather than the elements in it. So on this day of remembrance and hope, how does the story speak of the kingdom of God and the will of God. It's really unfortunate that the third parable in the series isn't included here because it's the prodigal son, which absolutely supports the notion that Jesus' method in this Lucan moment is to draw you into being personally engaged. And if you have ears to hear, to perceive the message of restoration and wholeness as paramount. And he does this so beautifully. Think about it. Can you imagine the people listening to him? Can you picture their rapt expressions as he gracefully shifts from images of angels rejoicing in heaven to this? There was a man who had two sons. How could you not be hanging on his every word? He goes on, of course, to explain about how the younger son demands his share and squanders it. And then, after receiving his spiritual awakening, returns to his father, repentant. The father, gripped to his bowels by compassion, then shows us how even more spiritual awakening plays out when it's not an object that was lost, when it's a human being with volition who made the loss happen. Because when the older brother does his whataboutism, that's when the father, with both tenderness and immense power utters words that echo and expand upon what is demonstrated in the first two parables, the inclination above all else toward restoration and wholeness. The kingdom of God within, the will of God within. Did you happen to notice what else ties these three parables together? Rejoicing. In each circumstance, Restoration brings rejoicing. Searching shepherd and sheep, sweeping woman and coin, father, son, the roles don't matter that much. In fact, they might be interchangeable because sometimes it's about me searching for God and sometimes it's about God searching for me. And that's not nearly as significant as the restoration and wholeness and how much the rejoicing is the overarching element, the real goal 
All of this has me perceiving 9-11 rather clumsily and for the very first time as a parable itself. But if 9-11 is a parable, where does the rejoicing fit in? It may be useful to begin to think of it in this way. Our world has not yet been consistently successful in absorbing Jesus' teachings and methods. But that's no reason to be discouraged. The very nature of the human condition, I suspect, means the process must be a time-intensive one. And don't forget, all forms of evolution are subject to sudden and unexpected periodic changes whether material or spiritual. Jesus, the Christ event itself, is just such a strange and unexpected event in the spiritual life of the world. It's foolish and maybe even fatal for us to look for the age of complete manifestation of the kingdom of God in the world while at the same time failing to connect it to the same manifestation in our own souls. Maybe Jesus initially intended to complete the process in one fell swoop. But as his very incarnation was in part a learning process about the human condition, which I believe it was, we learned more about God and God learned more about being human. And maybe part of what he learned was that the kind of change he hoped to make across the spectrum of human conditions really couldn't be made in a single stroke that would quite rightly have to unfold over centuries or even millennia. So maybe it's okay to not be overly consumed by worry, my beloved fellow sojourners. For I believe that there is, in the teachings of Jesus, an eternal nature that will not permit them to forever remain unfruitful in the hearts of human beings. If 9-11 is a kind of a parable, then it too may have to do with increasing the level of your personal engagement, no matter what that looks like. We may not be called to do all the work of healing this world. But we are surely called to do as much of it as we can, whensoever we can. If not in a spirit of rejoicing, most assuredly in anticipation of that spirit. Amen.